I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And I usually like to have at least a little bit of an introduction before I dive into all the material that we have each episode. I got nothing today. I don't know if you expect it or are irritated by it, but I've been, I I had something yesterday in mind that I was like, oh, that's fun. I should mention that. Totally forget it. Have no clue what it was. Got nothing to replace it with. Sorry, nothing. I'm not fun. (laughs) I'm not fun at all today. So we're just going to dive right in. So here we are. Still talking about the Bible, the history of the Bible, and getting deeper into the history and effects of Bible translation over the 2,000 years since we have had the whole complete Bible, right? So we talked about early Bible translations, we talked about early manuscripts and things that archaeology has dug up literally and figuratively. And so we have lots of different translations today, partly because there's just a lot more research and technology and ability to make translations and different perspectives on things that may want to do things this certain way or that certain way. But in the time of the King James Bible, you had to travel to where manuscripts were in order to use them or even just view them in order to help you make your new translation. So we talked in the last episode about how there's like the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus and all of these different early manuscripts of the Bible. Well, some of them were just not even available and like not even found. We didn't even know they existed before the King James Bible was published. And other ones were just not released to the public. And all of them, of course, weren't available through modern technology of even photography until the 20th century. Yeah, there's just a whole lot more that's readily available to people that want to make a Bible translation or want to improve one. So today, you can have photos online. You have Bible software that can provide you with all sorts of photographs of different, more obscure manuscripts. Um, Even museums will just show you at least a few pictures of these different manuscripts. So if you remember the different museums that I mentioned in last week's episode about the different manuscripts that are available, there's a lot that are at the British Museum in London, the Vatican Library, and there's a couple of American museums that also have some of these manuscripts. So some are available in New York City and DC, and I think there's some on the West Coast as well. So there's just a lot of information and a lot of ability to revise and work on editions of the Bible and revisions of different translations and on and on. But we've already had a very long history and tradition of translations that have helped to shape how we understand and think about the Bible. And there's no escaping that. You can't erase history. Um, And so if there's anywhere that I agree with the phrase, our history shapes our present, I totally agree with it with the Bible. Because the way that the Bible has already been translated affects both our understanding of the Bible and our expectations of the Bible. So here's how it works. 
And this is what we're going to talk about is the effect of older Bible translations, how they have helped shape our understanding of the Bible and what it does for our interpretation of the Bible. Okay. So we're talking about English. (laughs) That's the Bible that I read and probably you too. So we'll start talking about English first. English is a bit of a mishmash language. If you want to learn more about how, we did our little summer linguistic series, and that was the very end of season one. So if you want to know more about linguistics and how it affects how we read the Bible and it affects how we translate the Bible, you can listen to those last three episodes of season one. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But in there, we talk about borrowing words from other languages and using them in our own. Sometimes just because you didn't even know about that concept before, or it wasn't important enough in your own culture to make a word for it. Some examples in English are jungle and shampoo. Those are both Indian words. And words like sushi or curry come from other cultures because it reflects things that they do or eat or say or talk about in those cultures. So sometimes you won't have a concept in your own culture and so in your own language. And sometimes you'll have the concept, but it isn't really fully developed to the same extent that another culture would talk about it because we just don't experience it as much. The Eskimos, Inuit, have a lot of words for snow because they are surrounded by it and they need to know specifically what kind of snow you're talking about. So I live in Pennsylvania and it just snowed the other day and my son asked me, what is this snow good for? And he was basically asking, can we make snowballs? Can we make snowmen? Or can we go sledding, right? Because if you know snow, you know there's good packing snow and there's good powder snow. Packing snow is wet and soggy, very good for forts and snowmen and snowballs, but horrible for sledding because you're going to get stuck in it. And then there's powder snow, which is fantastic for skiing and sledding, but miserable for building anything. The Inuit have words for those kinds of snow so that they don't have to say, what is this snow good for today? They can just probably say, it's powder snow, it's blah, 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 and they'll have a word for it. So it's much more efficient terminology. And in Pacific Islanders, like in Chamorro on Guam, where I grew up, there's a lot of different words for coconut because it's not just a coconut. (laughs) There's coconut trees everywhere. Is it a young coconut where it's very soft, tender meat on the inside? Or is it a more mature coconut that has the hard meat that has to be grated? Or is it a coconut that is so fully mature, it's on the ground already? So they have different words for each stage that a coconut can go through. So different cultures will have different uh, range of terminology available just because of how much experience or exposure they have to something and how important it is to their culture, all right? So with that, Latin, (laughs) Latin pretty much has the monopoly on Bible jargon, (laughs) Uh, Latin and Greek to some extent. Because in Western Europe, it was Latin. Latin was the language of the Bible, and it was the language of the church, because the Catholic Church did not want the Bible to be translated into other local languages, such as French or Spanish or English, because they wanted it to be in Latin. So they they wanted Latin to have a monopoly in it, because they did not trust the Bible to be translated into other languages and the meaning to be reflected accurately. So with that, 
we still have a lot of words that we talk about the Bible with. A lot of biblical ideas and concepts we have words for that come straight from Latin. And even though we're English speakers, we still use those Latin words. We might spell them slightly differently at times, but the words like justification, sanctification, and glorification, the hard words, (laughs) come from Latin. So this sometimes just complicates things that now we have double the amount of vocabulary for some things because now we have English words that developed to talk about these things and we have the Latin words. So a really good example are the words holy and sacred. Holy and sacred. Now there's no difference in meaning between those two things. They have the same exact meaning, set apart to be useful for God. That's one of the meanings. Holy is from Old English. Sacred is from, ding, 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 Latin. So with holy, you have a root in there. And so the words holy, hallowed, and holiness all come from that same root. So you can think of that as one little cluster. I usually think of word groups as like a flower where there's a root in the middle and then the different petals are words that are related to that root. So holy, hallowed, and hallowedness. Is that a word? Hallowedness? Anyway, holy, hallowed, and holiness are all on the same flower. Sacred, from Latin, comes from the same root as sanctity and sanctification. That group, one flower. The other flower has the same meaning, same cluster of meanings, but they're from different sources. Another one that is Middle English and Latin is Testament is from Middle English and Covenant is from Latin. And we actually talked about this a bit in season one. I don't know what episode it is, but we talked about how Covenant, Testament, and to some extent contract all have the same meaning. So if you ever wonder why do we call it sometimes a covenant and sometimes a testament, well, it's just a matter of Latin intruding on English, basically. We have a lot of words from Latin that we tend to use with our English words because of the influence of Latin on such important and influential translations, such as the King James Bible. And we're going to be talking about the King James Bible a lot in this episode. So what I wanted to do was find words that are from Latin and do they help us understand or do they actually make things a little bit more confusing and Basically, could we do without those words? And a lot of the time, we could do without those words, but they're kind of iconic words, and they're interesting, and they definitely have an effect on things, okay? So let's go through, and you'll see what I mean. So one of the words that I was really surprised that this is Latin and really should be translated a different way is the name Lucifer. Lucifer. So if you just hear this name, Lucifer. What do you think of? I realize that when I think of it, I automatically assume that that means Satan, the devil, and that it was a name for him, though I don't really know why we don't use it all the time if that's his specific name. So that's what I understood. So I looked it up, and guess what? It's only from one verse in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14, 12. This is the only place where the word Lucifer is found. So I'm going to read it. This is out of the King James, and here's how it goes. 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Okay, kind of hard um, language in there, but you get the gist that the writer or the author or the narrator of whoever it is, is talking to someone and calling them Lucifer. Here's where it gets interesting. I pulled up a list of 16 different English Bibles, different translations, and the word Lucifer in this verse only appears in four out of 16 of those Bibles, okay? And that's a lot of the major translations, NIV, ESV, King James, NRSV, there's so many different kinds, NET, ASB, (laughs) they're all over the place, there's so many acronyms. Anyway, only four of those modern English Bibles had the word Lucifer in there. And those four Bibles, King James, New King James, and then two other Bibles that were both published in the 1800s. No Bible published in the 1900s includes the name Lucifer. But how many of us know that name? I would guess practically everybody knows that name. It's become a cultural, like culturally identifiable. We just know it because we know it, even if you don't read the Bible, right? So I looked it up and I was <laughs> did a little bit more uh, research on it. And it turns out it's not even a proper name in Hebrew, in the original language. It's not a proper name. So what it is, is Lucifer comes from Latin. And what it means specifically in Latin is light bearer, one who bears light. So Lucifer, luz, luce, fer, pharaoh, that is light bearer. And when it was translated into this in Jerome's Bible, the Latin Vulgate in the 400s, he wanted to translate the phrase from Hebrew, which just said something along the lines of day star or shining star. And he made it just a little bit more vague, a little less specific. And he said light bearer. And when that got translated into the King James Bible, it became a proper name, okay? Now, if you research today about what is this person, who is this person, and who are we talking about, it might not even be Satan at all. So Lucifer being the name of Satan is from the Latin Vulgate being translated into the King James English and being mistakenly capitalized and made into a proper name and now all of a sudden 500 years of people believe that this is satan's name and it might be referring to the king of babylon and not satan all right so hmm there's a whole can of worms there that if you want more info go for it (laughs) that's all that i'm going to get into for us today but it's pretty interesting that a name that i assumed always meant one thing is not a name at all and might not refer to the person I was thinking of at all. So, there you go. So, here's some of the other words that we have that come in our consciousness as 21st century people. Um, wait, are we 21st century? Yeah, we're, okay, yeah. Anyway, that we still know and get irritated by or can at least laugh at. And they're from King James English, okay? Thee and thou. Thee and thou. That's one of the things that people kind of make fun of Christianity at large for is that, oh, I don't want to be like a 
stuffy, stuck-up person that has to use these and thous. Well, that's King James English. But do you know what thee and thou are? It's just you. And it's from an older grammar that English used to use that we still partly use in English. Why do we have he and him? She and her, they and them? It's part of the same structure of grammar that thee and thou used to have. So we don't do thee and thou anymore. We use you, but we still use that same system of grammar for other pronouns and just not for you. (laughs) So it's not so weird. We just don't use it anymore and it sounds pretty foreign. All right, here's another one. In the NIV, 1 John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One and only Son. Pretty clear, pretty simple. In the King James Bible, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. All right, begotten. Do we use that anywhere else in life? except for the King James Bible, and I would say probably not. I think in other translations, in when you get into genealogies in places like Matthew and Luke, they use the word begat. Um, it just means to have children, but it is Middle English, early modern English way of saying to have a child. Now, begotten, it just sticks in our brain because this is a really famous verse, but we don't use that word except in reference to the Bible, and partly because it's a unique word in Greek. I think, if I remember correctly, that word is actually only ever used in John 3.16, and there's actually more going on with it than it just being oddly worded. We actually misunderstood the root of that word for a really long time, and it doesn't specifically mean what we always thought. It doesn't change it too much to have this newer understanding of it, unless you want to get into really philosophical topics, which I'm not going to go into right now. But if you want more info, I'm going to put a link into the show notes about what that word means and how it was misunderstood. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. But if you want to learn more, I'll put that in the show notes. So moving on, some of our other misunderstandings about biblical words come from the Latin Vulgate. Don't even need to get messed up with the King James Bible. And so we have some misunderstandings going all the way back to 400 AD. So here's a good one. When Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, what fruit did they eat? If you have a children's Bible, this might be a fun exercise. Go pause this and go check out your children's Bible and see what do they picture in the Bible? What do Adam and Eve hold in their hands if they hold anything? Or what tree are they standing next to? It's interesting because most of the time it'll be an apple, even though I don't think apple trees grow in the Middle East that much. In that passage in Genesis, it's just a generic word for fruit. It is not a specific kind of fruit. It just says fruit, and we don't know what kind. So why did it end up being an apple? And why is that always depicted in art? And why do we usually think of an apple? And the answer lies in the Latin translation of the Bible, which was done by Jerome in about 480. And, you know, when you're translating the Bible, you have to pick something. (laughs) You can't just leave gaps in the sentence and be like, I don't know. Let's just leave a blank. You have to pick something. And when it's really tough, sometimes the translators will just plop in the Hebrew or Greek word because they're like, you know what? It's better to not translate this at all. And as a very specific sense, 
or we get a cultural feel out of it, or we just really don't want to guess, you know? So for Jerome, when he saw this word for fruit, he picked actually a very good word. He did a very good translation and he picked the word malum in Latin. And that's a generic word for fruit, but it also means apple. He also picked the word because it is very similar to the word for bad in Latin. So it did double duty. It was kind of a pun that it was bad that they picked from this tree. So he did a great job. It was a pun that kind of fit exactly what was needed and gave a sense, kind of almost a foreshadowing, that this was a really bad thing. But it accidentally did triple duty because it also meant apple, and people started to think of it more as an apple than as just generically fruit. We don't know what it is. So that's why we end up with apple. (laughs) Thanks, Jerome, even though you did a great job. Another word that people like to pick on is how in the King James translation, we have the word unicorn. Unicorns in the Bible, yo. And if you didn't know about unicorns in the Bible, don't worry about it. It's just a King James Bible thing. And I've seen different places like memes that make fun of the Bible because, hey, you include uh, legendary creatures in the Bible. What kind of fairy tales are you reading over there? Kind of thing. And I, I don't care about that stuff, but it's still like... How are you going to talk about unicorns in the Bible? How are you going to defend the Bible if somebody is making fun of it that way? And so here's some fun facts. Unicorn appears about nine times in the Bible and just in the King James because it is a word that comes out of Middle English and it comes from Latin. The Latin word is unicornus. And that word we get because in the Greek Septuagint, when they had to translate a word from the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word was re'em. It was the name of an animal. They weren't sure what that animal was, but when they went to write the Greek Septuagint in the AD 200s, they had to translate this as something, right? So we run into this problem that I just mentioned, that you can't leave it blank. Sometimes you just transliterate it. You just write it again using your alphabet. Or sometimes you have to translate it into something different, And you might have to take a guess at what it is, right? So the Greek Septuagint writers guessed that it meant something with one horn. And they thought it was probably a rhinoceros. And so they're like, you know what? Let's call it a one-horned thing. And that way it's a bit vague. It's a bit general. But it references enough that you can think of a rhinoceros, okay? So that's what the Greek Septuagint did. The word re'em in Hebrew, though, doesn't tell us about horns at all. It doesn't tell us if this animal has one horn, no horn, or 15 horns. It doesn't mention horns, okay? So the Greek Septuagint was like, let's put a word that says one horn. So their word was monokeros, mono, one, keros, horn. So in the Latin Vulgate, they translated this as unicornus, meaning one horn, Does it refer specifically to the mythical creature that is a horse with a horn on its head? And if you want to make it look like My Little Pony, it has sparkles and a very colorful tail. No, it doesn't mean that. It means a one-horned animal. It does not mean a mythical creature, right? So that went into the King James Bible as unicorn. Does it mean fancy creature with fluffy tail? No. 
It means one horned animal. Now, what did it actually refer to? This is just extra stuff, but what did it actually refer to? What is a ram? Well, it was thought to be a lot of different things, basically, because we're not entirely sure, because it doesn't tell us explicitly in the Bible what it was. One really good guess is that it was a kind of wild, undomesticated ox. So we have domesticated oxen, you know, this is just cattle. And then there was an undomesticated ox that was much larger and had really huge horns. And we know about this from archaeology and from historical records, including the Assyrians. The Assyrians wrote about these Ram. And Julius Caesar, on one of his conquests, mentioned this giant ox. And in other places, we know about this giant ox too. And I looked it up, and there's actually a skeleton for this giant ox in the, I think it's the Museum of Copenhagen or the Denmark Museum. Anyway, a museum in Copenhagen, Denmark, has a full skeleton of this undomesticated giant ox that went extinct in the European area in the 1600s and went extinct in the Middle East much earlier than that. So it's not some kind of mythical creature, this wild ox, but that's an option for what this could have been. Not so much a unicorn as our modern understanding of that word tells us. So there are some of the things that have gotten confusing because of kind of the game of telephone that we do when we translate from one language to the next and go through time and different variations of the language like we did with Old English up to Middle English to Modern English and all that, you know, like just traveling through time as a language just distorts things. Archaeology can still add to our understanding because we can understand the original languages better and that can help clear up some of that cloudiness in translation as language has progressed and added variation in meaning. All right, so the last thing that we're going to do in this episode is talk about the physical Bible in the 1500s. What did it look like? How much did it cost? What was it made of? We've done this, I think, three other times for the Bible to describe how it looked like in Moses' time around 1400 B.C., and we mentioned that there wasn't much. Most of the Bible had not been written. Things were written on stone. Um, sometimes you would see ostracon, which were broken pieces of pottery that would be like the poor man's Bible or the random person's notebook, ostracon, and writing on stone. And then we talked about the time of Jesus, about 30 AD. We talked about parchment and papyrus and different types of writing materials at that time. And then we looked at the early church in about 400 AD and how parchment was getting better and better. And there was a certain style that Bibles tended to be written in. And they were incredibly expensive because you needed a whole flock of animals, 50 to 60 sheep or goats in order to write a Bible. And that's just for the leather. That's not even mentioning the scribe that you'd need. Because it was such an expensive book, it would often be decorated with some calligraphy and maybe even some paintings on it. So super fancy because this was a very expensive, basically, work of art. So now we're going to look at 
what did a Bible look like in 1500 AD? And this is when major Bible translations were being done with English and Spanish and other European languages like German. And this is also about the time of the Protestant Reformation. That was in about the 1530s is when it really took off, I think. And the King James Bible wasn't done until 1611. So a Bible right before the time of the King James Bible. Okay, so cost, appearance, and materials of a physical Bible about the time of the Protestant Reformation. So some inventions were happening and had just been invented to help with all of this. Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press in Germany in 1440. So printed books started becoming popular around the time of the Protestant Reformation. Before that, books were still being copied out by hand, though they would have been in the book form that we know today. They wouldn't have been in scrolls or anything like that. They would have been on individual sheets of something, usually parchment. But also around this time, paper, as we know it today, was only starting to be used in Europe around the 12 or 1300s. So you get the invention of paper in the in Europe. <laughs> paper was invented in various places in the world at different times. But in Europe, paper was not anywhere near widespread until the late 1300s or so. So that's when paper mills were starting to be built and start processing enough paper to make books. And then we also got the movable type printing press in 1440. And before that, they had printing presses but they were what you call block printing presses. And that's where you imagine a whole piece of paper or maybe something the size of a laptop and the whole thing, one whole block of wood or one piece of metal would be carved to have a sheet of print on it. So you couldn't change around sentences. You couldn't move things around. It was just permanently like that. So you could print something a hundred times, no problem. But if you wanted to print something slightly different, you'd have to do it all over again on a different block of wood. You couldn't change things minorly. So movable printing press is what newspapers still use today. And so that was in 1440. So all of this, paper, movable type printing presses, ink was already around, but all of this really changed the availability of books. Since paper, even though it was a newer technology, was so much cheaper than parchment. And so it was bringing an ability to mass produce books with a printing press rather than that block press or by writing things out on hand. So a book at this time would have looked much more like a modern book with perhaps a leatherback binding or on paper pages. But one big difference is that sometimes books were published serially, meaning in chunks. Uh, If you've read literature from this time period, even up through the 1700s, often books, novels, were written in sections or chapters and published one chapter or one section at a time so that you would have to wait (laughs) a month or two to get the next installment of a story that you wanted to read. So sometimes Bibles were published in the same way where you would get a book at a time or maybe Old Testament together and then New Testament at a different time. So publishing was done differently, but what you got looked much more like a modern book than it ever had before. So how much did this cost? It was all much more affordable than a parchment book, like I already said. 
And we said that that cost a small fortune just because of the amount of animals, 50 to 60 goats or sheep. That's a whole flock, you know. You have to have a sheepdog for that amount. But a paper Bible really brought that cost down a lot. So a parchment Bible in the 400s would have been several years worth of wages, if not many years worth of wages. So it would have to be a very wealthy family or a whole church that sponsored the writing of a Bible. But a Bible at the time of the Protestant Reformation probably cost only about three weeks or four weeks or five weeks worth of wages. So say about a month of wages, that means that upper middle class, if there was such a thing at the time, but upper middle class and upper class families would definitely be able to afford this now. Anybody that had enough resources to be able to save a month's worth of wages could buy a Bible. Still expensive by our standards today if you want to just stroll down to any bookstore and you can buy a $20 Bible. How many hours of wages would that be? For some people, not me, (laughs) but for some people, that might be just one hour's worth of wages. So we still have it very, very good today as opposed to any other time in history. Bibles are much more readily available, so easy to get, and it's super cheap. All right, so there you go. The history of the Bible in terms of translation and availability. There's so many factors that go into how we read the Bible today, what we expect of it, the terminology we expect to see, all these different kinds of things. It's a pretty complicated book in terms of its history and our understanding of it. But we're going to go even further. In the next episode, we're going to talk more about the influence of translation and how translation is done, because we're going to talk about one specific word in Hebrew and how it was translated in the King James Bible, and our understanding of it today. It's actually one of the most important Hebrew words in all of the Old Testament, and you've probably never heard the word. All right, so I'm really looking forward to that one with you guys. I hope you have a great day, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.